Welcome to Advancing the Agenda. I'm Michael Abramson. Today's topic is the impeachment inquiry of President Joe Biden. And we will also discuss a listener question about the recent Republican debate. From there, I'll discuss developments about future Republican debates. Let's start with the impeachment inquiry. On this past Wednesday, December 13th, the House of Representatives voted to open a formal impeachment inquiry against President Biden. The vote was 221 to 212, and it was all on party lines, meaning all Republicans voted in favor of the inquiry and all Democrats voted against it. An impeachment inquiry is not an impeachment. It is merely an inquiry or a procedural process to gather evidence to determine whether an impeachment vote should be held. I'll be discussing some of the allegations against President Biden later on in the podcast, But first, let's explain how this House impeachment inquiry, which was passed by a House vote, differs from the impeachment inquiry, which Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy had unilaterally proclaimed in September. And let's also define what an impeachment inquiry does. On September 12th, Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy opened an impeachment inquiry against President Biden. Speaker McCarthy opened this impeachment inquiry on his own, that is unilaterally. The House of Representatives did not vote on this impeachment inquiry. I discussed Speaker McCarthy's impeachment inquiry in episode 72 of the podcast. During that podcast, I stated that the impeachment inquiry may not be an effective tool to subpoena information. I made this comment because during the Trump administration, the White House stated that an impeachment inquiry, which is opened solely by the Speaker of the House, and not with a vote of the entire House of Representatives, is an illegitimate impeachment inquiry. The Department of Justice adopted this position as well. During that episode, I predicted that the Biden administration would object to subpoenas from McCarthy's impeachment inquiry on the same lines that the Trump administration did. That is, the Biden administration would argue that they were not subject to the subpoenas until the full House opened an impeachment inquiry. Ultimately, that's the path that the Biden administration chose to follow on at least some of the subpoenas. And consequently, the House was unable to get answers to many of the subpoenas which they issued. Now that the House has voted for a formal impeachment inquiry, the Biden administration can no longer use the excuse of an illegitimate impeachment inquiry as a reason to not answer the subpoenas. We will see if the House gets answers to their subpoenas. It's likely that the Biden administration will object on various grounds, such as executive privilege. Ultimately, the objections to some of these subpoenas might be handled in the courts. One of the issues which the House might face in the impeachment inquiry is time. It's only 11 months before the presidential election, and the impeachment inquiry might not be done by then. If objections are made regarding discovery, and it's likely these objections will be entered, and they go to the courts, the courts may take a long time to resolve these discovery disputes. The Republicans would have been better off formalizing an impeachment inquiry by a vote of the House in September, that is, three months ago. Speaker McCarthy did not hold a vote then, though, probably because he did not have the votes to pass the impeachment inquiry. There's one more point regarding time in the impeachment inquiry. 
Let's remember that the Republicans spent three weeks trying to replace Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We'll see if this issue of time comes back to hurt the Republicans in their impeachment inquiry. Speaker of the House Mike Johnson had an op-ed in USA Today in which he discussed the impeachment inquiry. I've linked to this op-ed in the episode details of the podcast. Speaker Johnson made several allegations against President Joe Biden. I'll be reading them here. They are bulleted in the op-ed, and I will add designations such as first, second, third. The allegations are as follows, and I quote, First, from 2014 to 2019, Biden family members and their affiliate companies received more than $15 million from foreign companies and foreign nationals in Ukraine, Russia, Kazakhstan, Romania, and China. Biden Business Associates received an additional $9 million. Second, there are at least 22 examples of Joe Biden speaking with or meeting with Hunter Biden's foreign business associates. Third, President Biden and the White House have lied multiple times about his involvement in his family's business schemes. Four, last week, investigators released information showing payments to Joe Biden from Hunter Biden's business account, which was funded by payments from China. Fifth, investigators also released an interim report detailing the special treatment Hunter Biden received from Joe Biden's Justice Department. Sixth, a credible FBI source relayed information about an alleged bribe Joe Biden accepted during his time as vice president. Close quote. Johnson also stated, and I quote, the oversight, judiciary, and ways and means committees will continue investigating the role of the president in promoting the alleged influence-peddling schemes of his family and associates, the orchestration of which reaped millions of dollars in payments from America's foreign adversaries. The committees also will further investigate statements made by the president concerning his knowledge and involvement in those schemes and the role his administration might have played in covering up alleged wrongdoing, close quote. Johnson also stated, Quote, the White House has withheld thousands of pages of documents and emails from the National Archives, where then Vice President Joe Biden was communicating under pseudonyms, clearly to avoid public scrutiny. Close quote. I find it interesting that the National Archives is accused of withholding information and protecting President Joe Biden, while at the same time the National Archives was instrumental in the underpinnings of the raid against President Trump at Mar-a-Lago as well as the other matters which are part of the documents case pending against President Donald Trump in Florida, which was brought by special counsel Jack Smith. Mark Levin, in his December 14th national radio show, stated that there should be three other articles of impeachment against President Biden, aside from the article regarding the alleged bribery scheme. You can listen to Levin thoroughly lay out these three points and the reasons for them by listening to the Mark Levin podcast from December 14th. I've linked to Levin's podcast in the episode details of this podcast. Let's move on to listener questions. Brad from Alabama asks, what do you think of the last Republican presidential debate and who do you think won? To be perfectly honest, I was only able to watch the first 30 minutes of the debate, but I do have a few observations. First, the Republicans continued the same pattern that they've had in the previous debates, meaning that there were not many attacks against President Biden and discussions of what they would do different if they were president. 
I just don't understand this strategy from the candidates. The point of the election is to defeat President Joe Biden. And I would think that the candidates would want to discuss why President Biden has been a poor president. To me, if the candidates discussed Biden's flaws during the debates, then Republican voters would probably identify more with these candidates. And accordingly, it seems like their approval ratings would increase. This strategy would seem to be the preferred one. Let's contrast their approach with that of President Trump. I was just watching one of President Trump's rallies, the rally in New Hampshire, and he spent most of his time discussing why President Biden has been a poor president. The crowd loved President Trump's speech, and he'll probably get a bump in the polls from it. I don't understand why the other candidates are not following this model. My second observation from the debate is that I was disappointed about how personal it got. The candidates insulted each other many times, and I don't think it was a good look for the candidates or the party. Another observation is that the debate drew very poor numbers. Only 4.1 million people watched the debate, and the debate was shown on two channels. 1.6 million people watched on News Nation, and 2.5 million watched on The CW. These poor ratings continue a trend for the Republican debates. The first debate drew 12.8 million people, the second 9.5 million, and the third 7.5 million. These numbers probably indicate that the public is not very interested in those Republican candidates besides President Trump, and it might indicate that the public doesn't like how the debates are taking place, meaning that they don't like the insults and candidates interrupting each other. Possibly as a result of the poor numbers for the Republican-sponsored debates, the Republican Party recently stated that it will no longer hold candidates to that part of the pledge which they signed concerning participation in only RNC-sanctioned debates. As a result, the candidates will likely be participating in debates sponsored by CNN and ABC. The Republican Party needs to be careful about the network on which the debates take place and who the moderator is. Let's go back to 2012 and the debate between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney. During that debate, CNN moderator Candy Crowley tried to correct Mitt Romney for one of his statements. Candy Crowley's statement impacted the debate and the election. During the primaries in 2012, George Stephanopoulos moderated a debate between the Republican candidates and started the myth of the Republican war on women. With this history in mind of how Republican candidates have been so badly mistreated by certain moderators and networks, it's both baffling and frustrating that the RNC and Republican candidates don't focus on doing debates where the moderators and networks are pro-Republican. For example, the RNC should have had a debate on Newsmax. Newsmax slants conservative and pro-Republican, and it's likely that a Newsmax debate would have put the Republicans in a very good light. Let's go back to the pledge that the Republican candidates had to sign. The RNC eliminating the portion of the pledge concerning RNC-sponsored debates is also unfair to those candidates who dropped out of the race earlier. They signed the pledge and were not able to participate in non-RNC-sanctioned debates. And to make matters worse, the RNC did not allow them to come on the RNC debate because they did not meet the RNC's qualifications. So, these other candidates, like Larry Elder or Perry Johnson, were not able to be in any type of debates. 
If the RNC was going to get rid of the debate portion of the pledge, they should have done so at the beginning of the primary process so these candidates could have participated in non-RNC-sanctioned debates and possibly gotten more publicity. It's a shame that the RNC hurt these candidates' chances by not allowing them to be on the Republican debates and not allowing them to participate in non-RNC-sanctioned debates. The RNC needs to be more fair with those candidates who are running for office. The RNC should not be making rules which could affect who would win the nomination. The RNC should have allowed all of the Republican candidates to participate in the debates, and they should have held these debates with networks and moderators who are pro-Republican. Please follow the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And I look forward to speaking with you next time on Advancing the Agenda. 